Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. It says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. For some of you in Sunday school growing up and churches growing up, you may have sang the song. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to learn to be the servant of all. In this passage, we find a mother's request in verses 20 and 21. And then the king's reply in verses 22 and 23. The request is going to prompt a response on the part of the disciples. In verse 24, Jesus is going to use both this request and this response of the disciples for a teaching moment. In that moment, Jesus is going to teach about true biblical leadership as selflessness and service. And in this specific instance, the certainty that accompanies sacrifice and service, which invariably is going to involve suffering. Jesus is going to teach his disciples what it means to be great in God's kingdom. So in this passage, we see that greatness in part is composed of selflessness and service with a huge mixture of suffering and sometimes substitution. Let's remind ourselves of the context of the passage. Remember, for the third time, Jesus has announced the news that the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. He is going to suffer at the hands of religious leaders and Gentile authorities. He's going to be crucified. He's going to rise from the dead on the third day in verses 17 through 19. And granted, this is a lot to take in. A cross awaits the king. 
And the first time that Jesus spoke about a cross, Peter attempted to rebuke him. Now it prompts a selfish prayer on the part of a mother, the mother of James and John. The message of the cross is difficult to hear. And when the message of the cross is given, sometimes human beings are going to look for something else to talk about. Like their own personal greatness. Their own personal glory. So it begins with a mother's request. Look again in verses 20 and 21. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down. And asking something from him. And he said to her, what is it that you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit. One on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. It makes perfect sense. That a mother is going to ask for favors for her children. She kneels. She assumes the position of worship. But her real motive isn't to present something to him, but rather to get something from him. It's not wrong to ask for things, but we can ask for things with less than pure motives. Now, we're not immune from this temptation. We're sometimes guilty of coming to Jesus in order to get something from him that we think that we desperately need. True worship allows for praise and adoration on the basis of God's worthy character and his generous nature. But the mother of James and John are coming for mixed motives. Now, again, her name was Salome. And we know that from Matthew chapter 27, verse 56. And Mark chapter 15, verse 40. And again in Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Some Bible scholars suggest that this woman, Salome, who is the wife of Zebedee, whose sons are James and John, they suggest that she was the sister of Mary, which would mean that both James and John are the first cousins of Jesus. So there's a family tie. There's a relational... Um, there's, this is more than just people asking other people. There's, there's friendship and fellowship and relationship. That's part of the point. In Mark's gospel, we find Salome, along with Mary, at the cross of Jesus, along with John. In Mark 15, 40, in John's gospel, we read Jesus' mother and then his mother's sister, John 19, 25. That's how we connect the dots. So again, part of the point that I want you to understand right at this moment that is that as Jesus is speaking to her and as he's speaking to the cousins, there is a future for Salome. She is going to walk into that future. She is going to be in the future in the presence of that cross. Now you'll remember when Peter reminded Jesus earlier in the chapter that they've left everything to follow Jesus, actually in the last chapter, You'll remember in chapter 19, it says, So 
But Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. This is um, Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. He says, when, when, you, when the Son sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me also will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's look for a moment at what she's doing right. The mother of James and John must have heard this statement and must have believed it, that there's a future, that there's a future kingdom of glory and honor. She believes in this future kingdom where there is honor and glory and authority But again, there's something not quite right with her motive. She's not asking for God's glory. She's asking for her own. Again, we aren't surprised that a mother would ask the right thing for the wrong reason. Is this simply a mother's ambition for her children? Or has James and John conspired with their mother to make the request? What do you think the answer is? Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament may understand that in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 35, we read that it was James and John who came with the request. And so some people might say, well, in Matthew chapter 20, the mom makes the request. And in Mark chapter 10, the the boys make the request. There's no contradiction. Mother and sons unite together in a conspiracy to receive honor, glory, power, and praise. We should ask a different question at this point. Is it wrong to have ambition? Is it okay to have a pure and holy passion? Is it okay to have a magnificent obsession? I'm going to suggest to you that ambition takes two roads in the Bible. Not all ambition is wrong. The Bible says we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All of these things will be given to us as well, it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. There is a kind of singular ambition that the Bible applauds, embraces, and allows. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says we are to make it our ambition to lead quiet lives, minding our own business, working with our own hands. William Carey, who famously will go to uh, India, said, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Paul warns, Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. So apparently there's ambition and then there's selfish ambition in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. So how do we know if what we're doing constitutes a healthy ambition or a false ambition? Is your ambition self-seeking and self-serving? Are you looking for recognition or affirmation? Is your ambition something that involves deception? 
Do you want what you want and you're willing to lie in order to get what you want? Is it your ambition to serve yourself or to serve others? I want to point out that false ambition is deceptive and it's often associated with using and abusing those who we're supposed to love and serve. So almost invariably, you can rest assured that your ambition is not a healthy ambition if you're willing to manipulate and use people in order to get what you want. And if you use money or influence or power or position as as bargaining tools for divine favors, Peter, James, John formed this inner circle of close companionship to Jesus. They were in a position to see things and do things that weren't always available to their peers. And sometimes friendship with famous people can can bring an exaggerated sense of entitlement. False ambition also is fueled often by pride. And the more honor one receives, the more likely the proud person will look on others with contempt or worse, even indifference. So false ambition almost always misunderstands the facts. Remember the context. Jesus has just said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to come back to life. And It's in that context that they're saying, hey, once you're dead, we want the power, the glory, the honor that goes with whatever it means to have this kingdom. I want you to understand what's happening in part. Do they really believe with their mind and in their heart that Jesus is going to come back to life? I'm going to suggest to you that they don't. The facts that Jesus has revealed has focused on his imminent suffering, an imminent death, an imminent resurrection. So what in the world are they thinking? Are they thinking that there's the possibility that Jesus could die? I'm going to suggest to you that there is that possibility. In their wildest dreams, do they really believe he's going to come back to life? I'm going to suggest to you that that's not what they're thinking. Healthy ambition, God-honoring ambition, will bring purpose and meaning and significance into your life. There's no sin in leadership. It's, It's not a sin to want a position of authority or even a position of responsibility. The sin comes when we use those positions of authority and responsibility and power to lord it over people's lives, assuming the role of rulers instead of the role of servants. Someone said, what we must decide is how we are valuable rather than how valuable we are. And that's exactly right. It isn't how valuable Or how much value we have, but how much value we become in relationship to God's kingdom, to Christ. A visitor saw a nurse attending the sores of a leprosy patient. 
when the visitor saw the nurse attending to the needs of the leper, she said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And the nurse looked up from her task and said, neither would I. But I'll do it for Jesus for nothing. And now we begin to understand. D.L. Moody was right when he said, we may easily be too big for God to use, but we're never too small. And that gives us a hint of how we get to go forward. Look at the king's reply in verse 22 and 23. But Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you're asking, or you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, read it for yourself. Three words. We are able. All ambition comes with a price. Misguided ambition and healthy ambition. No matter who you are, no matter what you want to do, no matter what you want to become, it will come with a price. And the mother and the son seem fairly ignorant of what Jesus means by the cup and the baptism. And the cup is, of course, the cup of suffering. And the baptism is a reference to his death. This isn't a water baptism reference. And this isn't some sort of religious reference to a religious ritual. This is a reference to his upcoming soaking and suffering in blood. We might think of this as a kind of total immersion in suffering that's going to lead to death. If Jesus is speaking to both the mother and the sons, they have no idea what awaits them. Even for Salome, the wife of Zebedee, for Jesus and for Jesus' sake and for her sister's sake and for her son's sake, as they take this journey into the future, she has no idea that the request is going to find her on the outside of a Roman execution. What mother in her right mind would say, I'm willing to sacrifice my children to get what I want. But that's exactly what she's asking for. What kind of a person would volunteer for martyrdom? The cup that Jesus is going to drink and the baptism that awaits Jesus is a baptism and blood. It is a reference to his painful death on the cross. In verse 23, so he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared for by my Father. So what does greatness require? 
In part, it's going to require that you and I be willing to consider the cost. And we, we don't simply contemplate the meaning of Christ's suffering and death. We enter into that suffering and death. In what sense? It is the conscious and deliberate decision to embrace the disciplines of obedience to Christ and to death of self. It means that we ask God's will above, and we want God's will above personal comfort, above self-indulgence, above extravagance. And this is why most people won't ask for greatness in the kingdom of God. If you want to be great in God's kingdom. Okay, let's just for purposes of discussion say that that is something that you want. Something that you desire. You want greatness. But it requires discipline. Obedience, sacrifice, commitment. And again, this means you have to be willing to think about it. Consider it. Consider it. Consider what it is that you're seeking. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his, his righteousness, if you're seeking to serve Jesus, if you're seeking to serve the saints, this is going to take concentration and energy and effort. It's going to require learning and knowing and understanding the Bible. And so for many people, they want a religious experience. They want a religious community. They want a spiritual social club, but they're not willing to pay the price. And this means paying the price in order to secure God's given purpose for your life in Christ. So when Jesus asks James and John, think about this. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him in verse 22, we are able. And of course, we can talk till we're blue in the face about their ignorance and about their naivete. And they are ignorant, by the way. And they are naive, by the way. But let's just take their response at face value just for a moment. Just like the text is doing. Just like Jesus is doing. James and John accept the challenge. They embrace the challenge. Jesus says there's a price to pay. And they say, we're willing to pay the price. There's a price. And the price, of course, is going to include determination. And by the way, when you accept the challenge, when you accept the challenge of discipleship, not of salvation, but when you accept the challenge of discipleship where you go, I'm going to know him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. I want to walk with him. I want to be with him. I'm willing to embrace the discipline of suffering and obedience and Rest assured, almost without exception, that's the case. To whom much is given, much is required. A.W. Tozier 
made the comment. He said, those whom God will use greatly, he will hurt greatly. Are we willing to drink the cup of suffering? Are we willing to embrace the discipline of suffering and obedience? Are we willing to die to self daily? Are we willing to take up our cross? Are we willing to embrace an unshakable loyalty to Jesus? I'm not talking about an unshakable loyalty to me or to Calvary or to this church or this time. I'm talking about an unshakable loyalty to Jesus because James and John will indeed drink from that cup. They will indeed experience the baptism. In the book of Acts chapter 12 verse 1 we read, Now about that time Herod... He's talking about Herod Agrippa I. Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. In the future, Peter and James are going to wind up in prison. Peter is going to be miraculously delivered by an angel. And James is going to get his head cut off. He will be the first to die. John, his brother, will be the last to die. James and John will serve as bookends of suffering to open and close the story of suffering for these men. John the apostle will witness the death of Jesus on the cross. He's going to live through the murder and martyrdom, not only of his brother, but of Peter and of Andrew and of Mark. John is going to be alive when both Peter and Paul suffer death. He's going to live through the murder and martyrdom of all of his peers. He's going to experience banishment and exile on the island of Patmos, according to church tradition, during one of the incredible purges that begins to take place. John will be taken before the emperor Domitian. He will be asked to reject, deny, Jesus, he will refuse. He will be placed in a vat of boiling oil and miraculously he will be delivered. And Domitian will take this deep fried apostle and banish him to the island of Patmos where he will write the book of Revelation. When Jesus describes greatness in the kingdom... He doesn't sugarcoat the prescription. He doesn't minimize the cost. Jesus doesn't, and I want you to note this, he doesn't deny their request. He simply reminds them that the positions that they're asking for are reserved for those that the Father has determined. God the Father will reward God the Son. God the Father will reward his followers according to his perfect judgment. Here's what Jesus is affirming. Jesus is affirming that each and every one of you will get exactly what you have coming to you. That the Father has determined exactly what it is that you will get. And so look at the disciples' response in verse 24. It says, and when they heard it, 
they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. <laughs> Are you surprised that selfishness can cause trouble for those closest to you? Does it surprise you that when you jockey for power and praise and glory and honor and you're willing to step over the backs of the people who are closest to you in climbing whatever it is that's called the ladder of success that people gripe and complain when they feel your foot on their neck? Let me ask you kind of an odd question. Why in the world would the other disciples be, note what the text says, greatly displeased with the two brothers? Any guesses? The disciples would have us believe that they're shocked and disappointed that James and John would use their close relationship with their cousin Jesus as a grab for power. That's a possible explanation. Another possible explanation is that they want the position for themselves. Which do you think is more likely? I suspect you're right. I suspect that their deep disappointment is that they didn't ask first. But I want you to note something that's happening in the text. And don't dismiss it out of hand. There's a growing jealousy. There's a growing rivalry. There's a growing jockeying for position. Now, I want you to think about this. How is this going to affect the mission that Jesus has for his disciples? The mission that he has them tasked to accomplish. Is it going to be accomplished in an atmosphere of jealousy and rivalry and positioning for power? I'm going to suggest to you it can't happen because that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus has asked. Jesus has asked them to love each other. Jesus has asked them to serve each other. And the disciples, I'm going to suggest to you at this point, are unable to see the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. They are unable to discern what constitutes power, glory, and honor from a biblical and godly perspective versus what constitutes the mind of God and the heart of Jesus. And so Jesus is going to use this moment to teach. In verses 25 and 28, look what it says, but Jesus called them to himself. I'm going to suggest to you he's calling all of them. All 12 of them and the moms who are along for the ride. Jesus calls them to himself and says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you. Let him be your servant. Jesus contrasts the Gentile, read human, people, apart from God and Christ version of greatness. So there's two views that are being presented. There's a worldly view of greatness that's being presented. And there's a godly view of what constitutes greatness. Before he's going to answer the question of what constitutes greatness, he's going to contrast these two worldviews, if you will. 
In the kingdoms of men, the rulers of the Gentiles, read it for yourself, lord it over for them and exercise authority over them. The world apart from Christ wants to lord it over people, to control people, to dominate people, to exercise dominion over them. In Spanish, there's a saying, it says, yo soy encargado. That means I'm in charge. We want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to make the decisions. In the Greek world and the Roman world, humility and service were the lowest, not the highest virtues. These were the lowest virtues. And remember, in the Greek world and in the Roman world, they sacrificed to gods and goddesses. In the, in the Jewish world, there's sacrifices to God. In the Christian view that Jesus has been demonstrating, he's going to turn everything upside down. He's going to say, I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm not, I'm not asking you to sacrifice to me in order to make me happy. I'm going to sacrifice for you in order to ensure that you get exactly what you need. Remember, even the Greeks and the Romans, they wanted to satisfy their gods and god goddesses. And so we ask the question, what does it, what's it going to take to satisfy our God? And the disciples at this point, they still think that Messiah's kingdom and Israel's restoration is one of dominion. Remember, they think the, they perfectly embrace a kind of dominion theology at this point. They want to take over. They want to throw off the yoke of, of oppression and, <clears throat> and secure independence. So what constitutes greatness? Jesus says it very simply. Greatness is serving others. There are bond slaves and then there are regular slaves in verses 25 and 26 the, it, it, it's very very important that you get this the word translated great is protos or protos it's sometimes translated first or chief in verse 27 and whoever desires to be first among you let him be your slave there's a contrast between the great in verse 26, the first in verse 27, the minister in verse 26, the bond slave in verse 27. The great are those who minister. And so the idea here is the person, the minister, is the occasional minister. This is the temporary servant. But the bond servant is the, is the slave who's the slave by choice. This is the bond servant who is bound to his or her master every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. The bond slave, the do loss, the person who is the slave, not by compulsion or because they're sold, but this is the voluntary submission 
of a person who has dedicated himself or herself to a lifelong service. So the Lord Jesus leaves us with the impression that there are those who provide occasional service and there, there are those who provide continual service. And so he's basically saying, do you want to be great? Provide occasional service. Do you want to be the greatest? Then you provide continual service. And look what it says in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, for many. So... Here's the question. Why in the world would the disciples entertain the notion that selflessness and service and sacrifice and suffering are the way to go? And here's the answer. Right here. Because this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus will Embrace selflessness and service and sacrifice and suffering. Dr. Doug Grotice writes, quote, Tied to the value of the person as the principle of servanthood, we value what we freely serve. I can't even begin to tell you what an important statement that is. What we value, what we freely serve or service. This is such a powerful statement laden with so much comfort and hope. And it begins to talk a little bit about the reality of what Jesus thinks about you and how he values you and how he loves you and how he cares about you. Because Jesus will serve Jesus will sacrifice. Jesus will substitute for you. And so Jesus is inviting the disciples to do exactly what he has done. So the true leader has the servant's heart. Jesus calls himself the son of man, identifying himself as human with a human burden. He is the son of God. He is the source of power. He is the creator of the world. He is the one who has hidden his glory and taken on the form of a servant. He is the one that Paul is going to talk about who in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 through 8 said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This means have this attitude, adopt this outlook, share this view, think about it this way, think about it the way that Jesus thought about it, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but rather, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Not just any kind of death, not a quiet death, not an easy death, not a peaceful death, but the most cruel death that you could imagine. And so in this passage, Jesus lays out true greatness in three supreme acts. Number one, Jesus came, the incarnation. Number two, Jesus came not simply to serve 
or to be served, but rather to serve. He secures his kingdom not by dominating men, but by serving them. And therein lies the secret, ladies and gentlemen, of everything. It's the secret of your home. It's the secret of working with your children. It's the secret in business. It's the secret of everything that has to do with everything. If you've ever looked at any successful business, they, the, the business that is almost certainly the one that's going to be the successful business isn't the one that takes advantage and manipulates people, but rather serves them. And number three, Jesus gives his life a ransom for many. That's the substitutionary atonement. In that simple sentence, Jesus came, the incarnation. Jesus serves, that's his life. Jesus gives that life as a ransom, that's his death. Ransom is an exchange. In the Old Testament, ransom was the redemptive price in order to set a slave free in Leviticus 19.21. It was the redemptive price paid for the land in Leviticus 25.24. It was the redemptive price paid for a captive in Isaiah 45.13. The word ransom is used two other times in the New Testament. Mark 10.45 in the parallel passage and 1 Timothy 2.6 where Mark says, well, in Mark's gospel, we read, for even the Son of Man doesn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In 1 Timothy 2.6, it says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In context, Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity. And so when Paul says he is the ransom for all, it's Paul's way of saying each and every person oh, has been taken captive. And Jesus is going to pay the price in order to liberate them. The mission of Jesus is to serve and to save. He takes our place. He dies the death that we deserve. He makes the payment. Not with gold or silver. But with his own blood, it says in 1 Peter 1.18. And so the disciples thought that the life and the power of Jesus would deliver them from the political and the social and the economic entanglements that they found themselves in. And Jesus is going to remind them that there is something far more wicked, far more sinister, far more evil, far more corrupt, far more permanent it's the problem of sin in the human soul. And so Jesus tells him he will die. And then he tells him not just simply where he will die and how he will die. He tells them why he will die. He's a ransom. And because Jesus is willing to take the lowest place here. He's given the highest place there. So are you surprised that selflessness and service lead to greatness? Are you surprised that suffering and brokenness 
can become the path to usefulness. And are you surprised that sacrifice is God's chosen means of redemption? Not your sacrifice, but Christ's sacrifice for you. So it makes perfect sense that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. Selflessness, service, suffering, sacrifice. Billy Graham wrote, the most eloquent prayer is the prayer through hands that heal and bless. The highest form of worship is the worship of unselfish Christian service. The greatest form of praise is the sound of consecrated feet seeking out the lost and helpless, unquote. Billy Graham has it exactly right. It is prayer that brings about healing and blessing. It's worship that results in service. Prayer, worship, praise. They become pathways to service. And so we pray. And so we worship. And so we praise. But all of this to afford an opportunity to act in selflessness, to act in service, to be aware that suffering, suffering and identification with Jesus is not the exception. It seems to be the rule. So Jesus invites us to do exactly this because he did exactly this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we understand that... <laughs> That this is not the message that's the popular message in our broken culture. We sometime, somehow have forgotten that, that, that it is not self that needs to be served. But rather selfishness needs to be slain and done away with. That power, honor, glory comes through those who are the rightful recipients, who in humility and transparency and sacrifice have given themselves to you. And so, Lord, again, we pray that we would begin at least to have a tiny glimpse into what it means for those of us who are willing to take the challenge and ask and answer the question, do you want to be great in God's kingdom? Then we have to learn, learn, learn to be the servant of all. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.